The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. If you were here just a couple of days ago on what we call Good Friday, I opened by saying, actually, if I get my volume down just a little bit so I don't hurt your ears, um, I said Friday that Good Friday was the most important day in the history of the world. I did. And then I will also say that today is Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday. And Resurrection Sunday is the most important day in the history of the world. Equally so. The crucifixion and the resurrection go together. From a biblical point of view and God's point of view, it's really one event. It's the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have the wonderful privilege of being reminded of and celebrating the greatest day in the history of the world. We're going to do that by looking at John chapter 20. So I'd invite you to open your Bible if you have one. And we're going to go to John 20. We're going to look at uh, the resurrection account from John's point of view. Actually, before I get to John 20, where we'll spend most of our time, if you have your Bible, you can either listen or flip there. I'm actually going to go to Genesis chapter 1 first by way of introduction, just to set the context. So the Bible begins with this book called Genesis, which means the beginnings. Describes real historical events that began 6,000 years ago. What began 6,000 years ago is creation. And in Genesis chapter 1, after God created all things, verse 31 says, when God was done with his creation, he said, it is very good. And he created the first two people, Adam and Eve. And when God looked at Adam and Eve after he created them and said, it is very good, he meant that they were created without sin. And the world was perfect at that time. And then in Genesis chapter 2, uh, God creates Adam and Eve. And when God creates Adam, God talks to Adam, the first man. Adam was a real man. God gave Adam a command in verse 16 of Genesis 2. And the Lord God commanded Adam, saying, From the tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Because if you do eat from the, the forbidden tree in that day, that you eat from it, you will surely die. And there the Bible introduces the holy creator God of the universe's view of sin and disobedience. God hates sin. He must punish sin. He cannot tolerate sin. And the consequence that the creator implemented for sin is death. And that is true throughout the whole Bible and all of human history. That's God's view. If there is sin, then a death needs to take place. So that's what God told Adam and Adam and Eve. They sinned. They disobeyed. And that's Genesis chapter 3. And upon their disobedience, they tried to hide from God. And then God hunted them down and shook the bushes and gave them consequences for their disobedience. And the main consequences were in Genesis 3, 14, and also in 17, God said, Cursed is, and he said that to, the, to Satan and the snake, Cursed are you because of your involvement in sin. Satan is real. Because that's who God addresses in Genesis 3.14. And then in Genesis 3.17, God said to Adam, because of your sin and disobedience, cursed is the ground. Cursed is the earth because of you. And so for the last 6,000 years, we have lived in a fallen and cursed earth and a cursed humanity and a cursed creation that once was very good because of disobedience and sin. And humans have been sinning for 6,000 years and God's Consequence remains the same. Sin requires the death penalty. And that's really the theme of the entire Old Testament. That's been true of human history for the last 6,000 years. And in the midst of this bad news and this curse from a holy God, God is not just a judge. He's also a loving, merciful Savior. And so, yes, he gave the decree of death for sin, but he also gave a solution for all sinners, that they can be alleviated or freed from that curse of death through his promise of a coming Messiah and the first messianic prophecy to introduce God's saving grace to overcome sin and the penalty of death is in Genesis chapter 3 in the very context where he gave the curse. And it's Genesis 3.15 where God said, as he's speaking to the snake or to Satan, I will put enmity or hatred between you, Satan, and the woman, Eve, who represents humanity, and I also put hatred and enmity between your descendant or uh, your seed and descendant, Satan, and between the woman's seed, 
And what God was saying is there's going to become there's going to come a descendant, an offspring from Eve sometime in the future to be a savior and to overcome the curse and to overcome Satan and to overcome death. That's God's promise. And it will be a man because God went on to say that he, this descendant of Eve, shall crush the head of Satan. Satan is the master of death and destruction. And yet this Messiah will come and he will crush Satan's head. He will undermine Satan's greatest ploy and weapon, which is death, this coming Messiah. Yet, Satan, you'll be allowed to hurt the Messiah because God goes on and predicts that you will bruise him on the heel. You will kill the Messiah. And that's what happened when Jesus died on the cross. He was killed. And he was killed by Satan and punished by God the Father for the sins of the world. Yet in verse 15, even though you're going to kill the Messiah, he shall crush your head. He will come back to life and overcome you, Satan. That's a veiled reference to the resurrection life of the coming Messiah given in the third chapter of the Bible 6,000 years ago. So the whole point and emphasis and theme of all of the entire Bible and the Old Testament and all of history is leading up to this coming Savior who will give his life for the purpose of suffering from God the Judge on behalf of sinners as their substitute, rising again from the dead, conquering death, Satan, hell, and the world on behalf of those who would believe in him. And so that's everything that in the Old Testament is pointing to this coming Messiah. So thousands of years later when Jesus came on the scene and was born of Mary and then he began his ministry at age 30 and he began to preach publicly at age 30, one of the first things he said is, I have not come to abolish the Old Testament, I have come to fulfill it and all the promises therein, which would start with Genesis chapter 3. I am the coming Savior. I am the coming Messiah that would deal with this problem of sin and disobedience and the consequence of God's wrath and death. And I will give my life for sinners as their substitute. And that's what happened on Good Friday. Jesus died on the cross willingly, knowingly. He planned it himself. He subjected himself to the wrath of the Father to absorb the sins of the world, which was a consequence or death, consequence being death. And then he was buried. And three days later, he rose again victoriously from the grave, as he said he would in his Old Testament scripture for thousands of years, predicted that he would, showing and revealing to all of creation that he indeed is the Messiah and the Savior of the world. And the culmination of all of this and all of God's plan is right here on Resurrection Sunday, John chapter 20. Let's look at this amazing, true, historical resurrection account of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, those of you familiar with the Bible, you know that there are what we call four Gospels. Gospel means good news. There's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those three Gospels were written within a 15-year period of one another from about 50 A.D., 20 years after Christ died, to about 65 A.D. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke written uh, within 15 years. And then about many years later, in the 90s, John wrote his Gospel much later. Critics of the Bible will often point to trying to undermine the Bible by saying, well, the four Gospels, they contradict one another. There are four different accounts of life, Jesus' ministry and life and death. No, they're not four different accounts. They are four complementary accounts. They are the life of Christ in stereo. If you actually look at it and read it in detail, there are no contradictions. There's perfect harmony and unity in the Scriptures. And if you understood the Old Testament and the Hebrew mind and God's legal requirements. God said to validate truth, whether among human affairs or especially spiritual truth, to validate truth, God required there be a testimony of two or three witnesses. So in the life of Christ, God in his wisdom had three written accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, within a 15-year period among his people in the early church, giving a testimony of two to three written, reliable, historical witnesses of everything that is true in the Gospels about the Lord Jesus Christ. That was incredibly important to the Jews and the early church. That's why we have at least three Gospels. And then God says, okay, just to make sure, we're going to give you four. And along came the Gospel of John in the 90s. So we're going to go ahead and look at John's account. And John deliberately fills in many of the details that are not found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that God felt we needed to know. And although his resurrection account is very similar to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 
uh, he does give us some unique features, and we'll highlight those as we go. So let's go ahead and look at John chapter 20, John the Apostle's account of Resurrection Sunday. John the Apostle wrote this. He wrote it 2,000 years ago. John the Apostle was a friend of Jesus. He was trained personally by Jesus for at least three years, probably more. He was probably a distant relative of Jesus. From reading the Gospels, we know that John became one of the best friends of Jesus. John the Apostle witnessed virtually all of Jesus' public ministry, John the Apostle witnessed is the, the betrayal. He followed Christ as he was being arrested. John the Apostle was one of the few apostles sitting at the foot of the cross for those six hours when Jesus was being crucified. John is a, an eyewitness. And when he writes his account of what happened, he doesn't need to rely on anybody else. He knows what happened. He was there. And that's why he wrote, this is a reliable account. Not only that, God promised, Jesus promised that when John sat down to write, the Holy Spirit of God would move John along and bring to perfect remembrance what he needed to write down. So the Holy Spirit of God preserved without error exactly what happened and gave us exactly what we needed. Didn't tell us everything we needed to know, but I mean, didn't tell us everything we could know, but tells us everything we need to know. So let's go ahead and look at John's account of that resurrection Sunday. Starting, we're going to go first verses 1 through 10, where the emphasis is on Kind of the, the disciples, the apostles. That last week when Jesus was going to be arrested and betrayed, and actually when he was arrested, his 11 apostles, Peter, John, and the rest of them, they were overwhelmed with fear. They felt like Jesus had abandoned them when he left. So they had great fear. They scattered when he got arrested. Jesus predicted that would happen. They were hiding in fear on... The, the entire time he was in the grave. They were hiding in fear on Saturday. They were hiding in fear even on Sunday resurrection morning. They were hiding in fear all week long after the resurrection. They were hiding in fear eight days after the resurrection, after Jesus had already appeared to some of the disciples. At least some of the women that were there. And that's what John's going to tell us a little later in John 20 says that the eight days after the resurrection, the disciples locked themselves in a room and were hiding out of fear of the Jews. So they were overwhelmed with fear. And so one of John's points of emphasis, I think, in this resurrection account is that when you know Jesus Christ, the resurrection Lord Jesus Christ, he can overcome your fears. That is the promise of resurrection life. And that is the point of emphasis in this chapter, and particularly in verses 1 through 10. So let's look and see how Peter and John the apostles begin to overcome this fear of loss about Jesus and confusion about the fact that their master is gone. And so it begins, uh, verse 1, Now on the first day of the week, so that's early Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene, who was a disciple, female disciple of Jesus, not an apostle, but a follower of Jesus, for a very long time, probably more than two years, as she's mentioned for the first time early in the Gospel of Luke, Mary Magdalene. We know very little about Mary. We do know that from Luke 8, she got saved by Jesus. She was a horrible, wicked sinner before she got saved. She was just a lowly commoner, nothing prestigious about her. As a matter of fact, she was the dregs of society because Luke tells us she was possessed by demons, at least seven demons. Just a vile, sinful, wicked woman. When Jesus met her, he saved her. He cast those demons out her, out of her. And then she just <laughs> fell in love with Jesus, her blessed Savior. And probably for the next two plus years, followed him wherever she could, as a group of women did. Meeting his needs, taking care of him, giving a place to lay if he needed, uh, supplying him uh, material needs at times. We know that from these women who ministered to him. Well, Mary was one of those. So we know very little about her. We do know that Mary was at the foot of the cross when Jesus was crucified. Most of his apostles scattered out of fear. These grown Galilean strong fishermen abandoned the Messiah at the crucifixion, save John the apostle. And here's a group of courageous, faithful women like Mary Magdalene at the foot of the cross, not abandoning her Lord. She was there the whole day, enduring six plus hours of watching her blessed Savior be crucified unjustly on a cross. And when they took his body down, Mary followed them as they buried him in a tomb nearby. And it says she was sitting on the ground watching as they buried him. She knew exactly where Jesus was buried. She's got this great love and affection for him as her Savior. So that's why all four Gospels 
in the resurrection account begin by saying early on resurrection morning when it was between it was still dark and just becoming light mary magdalene along with several other ladies with her were the first to go to the tomb to see the tomb and primarily to try to get into the tomb and anoint jesus's dead body they believed that Jesus was still dead. So her expectation as she's arriving very early is to see a big stone in front of the tomb so that she can uh, have somebody remove the stone and then go anoint his body. And so now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone had already been taken away from the tomb. So she gets there in a distance. The tomb, huge, massive stone, weighing thousands and thousands of pounds probably, is, has been removed. She panics. She's not thinking, oh, yippee, he's risen indeed. Not at all. She has great fear herself, the Gospels tell us. And she immediately thinks someone has stolen Jesus' body. Grave robbers, which was common. They would go in, raid tombs, steal bodies, and, so, and many times steal everything that was precious that was buried in with that person and valuable. So immediately she's thinking they have stolen the Lord's body and she goes into an absolute hysterical panic at this point. So what does she do? She runs in fear, verse 2. So she ran and she came to Simon Peter. So she goes to find the apostles and the head apostle, that was Peter, to tell him the bad news. They've stolen Jesus' body. So she ran, came to Simon Peter, to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. That is John the apostle as he's writing about himself and he refers to himself as the other disciple or the disciple whom Jesus loved who had a special relationship with the Lord Jesus, one of Jesus' best friends. So she runs to Simon Peter and to John the Apostle, and she says to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. In other words, they've stolen the body. And we don't know where they've laid him. Verse 3, Peter, he was a man of action. Sometimes not a man of thought or prayer or patience. He is a man of action. He gets up, man, and he's off and running. He didn't have to run far because we know that the place where he was buried was near the city. It was close to where they lived in Jerusalem. So verse 3, so Peter got up and the other disciple with him, John, the apostle, and they start running as fast as they can, heading to the tomb, and they were going to the tomb. And the two were running together, John and Peter, verse 4, and the other disciple, John, the apostle, ran ahead faster than Peter, and he came to the tomb first. Now, this is amazing. They're running to the tomb, and then they arrive at this tomb. On the front of your bulletin is a picture of a tomb. It could very well be actually the tomb that Jesus was buried in. How do you know that? Well, I have been to Jerusalem. And we took a tour of the land of Israel. And the thing that two things that stuck out to me about Jerusalem and the land of Israel. We went from uh, the very far down south all the way up north as far as you could go. And we covered the entire landscape of Israel. And one thing that stuck out is, man, Israel is a very, very, very small country. There were places where we could stand on a peak or a mountain or a plateau and see almost every significant thing. I mean, from one place we could see uh, Nazareth, Jerusalem. Uh, there's that mountain that's famous. And that one over there, just from one location. That's how small it is. Another thing that stuck out to me is everything is made of limestone. Everything is in stone. So a lot of this has been preserved for thousands of years. And so uh, this tomb, I would say this is amazing. I have been in that tomb. I, I believe very likely because uh, scripture tells us even here in the gospel of John uh, in John chapter 19, Verse 17, it says, they took Jesus out of Jerusalem, very near the city, to a place called the Skull, called Golgotha. So there was a historic, well-known place in Jerusalem, near Jerusalem, just outside the city of Jerusalem. It was called the Place of the Skull because of a probably a huge, massive mountain that looked like a skull. Did you know today that's still there? You can stand there and look at that mountain and say, wow, that looks like uh, an ugly, that looks like Darth Vader. That looks like a skull. So not only that, um, it was a well-known place to the Jews. Verse 20 says that they crucified Jesus near the city. The city is not big. There are a few possibilities where a tomb made of limestone could exist. Being described by that. So it's near the city. We know that. Again, it's a very small town. Then in verse 41 of John 19, it says where they buried him near the tomb, there was a garden. So this is incredibly limited in terms of the options of where Jesus was buried. And there is indeed near the city by a place that looks like a skull, a place that has a tomb that is in a garden. The tomb is still there today. 
and I have the privilege of going in to that tomb. And what was amazing, it was, it was still empty. He is risen indeed. So Peter and John run to this tomb. So there's John. He gets to the tomb, but he doesn't go in. John the Apostle. This may talk a little bit about John the Apostle. He's a leader, but maybe a little more cautious, maybe a little more passive, maybe a little more introspective. But he gets to the tomb, and he doesn't want to go in, even though the stone has been removed. Psh, not Peter. Man of action. He passes up John uh, the Apostle as John gets there. First in verse 5, and stooping and looking in, uh, he saw the linen wrappings lying there. That's John the Apostle. So he didn't go in, but he looks in, pokes his head around, and he sees the linens, two main linens that wrapped a dead body typically, one that wrapped the body and one that wrapped the head. He looks in, and those linens are there. They're still in place. They, they are where the dead body would be. They're not disheveled. They're not unraveled. They're not thrown around the place. They weren't stolen by tomb robbers. If somebody was going to rob the body, they would have just grabbed it and gone and in a hurry. They wouldn't have sat there, unwrapped the body, neatly folded the head covering, put it down very neatly. Oh, here, this right where it was. No. What happened? Jesus rose again from the dead and he, his body just went right through the linens and they laid in place exactly where they were as he was laying there dead. They're still there. When John sees it, so he looks in, sees the linens, but he doesn't go in. And then all of a sudden, here comes Peter, the leader. And so Simon Peter also came following John the Baptist. He just bolts into the tomb and he saw the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth which had been on jesus head not lying with the linen wrappings but rolled up implication very neatly in a place by itself totally intact verse 8 so the other disciple who had first come to the tomb also entered. okay it's safe there's no grizzly bears peter went in i'll go in now john maybe he was a little smarter than peter he enters into the tomb and get this at the end of verse 8 John enters the tomb. He saw the linens. He saw that the tomb was empty. And it says, this is a key phrase, and he believed. John the Apostle believed. Some people read that and think, well, this is where John the Apostle became a believer or a Christian. No, it's not. Jesus made it clear in John 13 at the Last Supper and the the foot cleansing that John the Apostle was already justified, uh, born again, saved, forgiven of all of his sins, and knew Jesus personally as Savior. He knew God already. He had already been saved. So when it says he believed, it's not he believed unto salvation. That's not the context. That's not what it's talking about. Well, what did he believe? Verse 9 is very clear. 4, it's connective. It's connecting 8 and 9 together. What did he believe? He believed the following. That's what verse 9 means. 4... As yet, up to that point, before John went in the empty tomb and saw the linens, up to that point, John the Apostle and some of the disciples were not understanding the Scripture, a specific Scripture. What Scripture? The Scripture in the Old Testament that predicted the Messiah must die and rise again from the dead. John the Apostle was a Jew. He was raised in the synagogue. He knew the Old Testament Scriptures. He was taught in Sunday school, I mean Sabbath school. He knew the Scriptures. But there were some that he read that just, whoop, Went over his head, he never connected the dots. He never understood it. And that was true of most Jews in Jesus' day. They didn't get it that when the Messiah came, he must suffer, be rejected, die, and rise again. And every time Jesus said that to them, it just, it did not, does not compute, does not compute. Even just before his death, he told them that. In Matthew 16, 21, he said it. Three weeks before he died. Okay, guys, we're going to Jerusalem. And it says from that point on, Jesus' point of emphasis with his apostles was the message that when we get to Jerusalem, I am going to be betrayed, arrested, and killed by the Jewish leadership. But at the end of that phrase, he said, and rise the third day. They didn't hear that. Are there ever times where you read the Bible and go through Scripture and you're reading along and... You don't, you just miss something. You don't get the deeper meaning of a scripture. Tell the truth. <laughs> that happens to me all the time. It's been happening my entire life as a Christian. And then you go back and read the scripture again. And read, oh, I've read the gospel of John 47 times. But every time you go through, then you learn something new. Wow, I didn't know that was in there. I've read this. I've memorized passages. I never knew this truth was in there. That's true of scripture. That's true of all of us. For our finite understanding, it's true because of our sin, our distractions, our limited abilities, the lack of illumination of the Holy Spirit, whatever it is, there are many times we read the Scripture and don't fully understand. But here, one of the truths that John had been educated in in terms of the Scripture in the Old Testament about the resurrection of the Messiah, finally a light went on for the first time in his life. And it was a promise in the Old Testament Scripture that the Messiah would rise again from the dead. I believe that Scripture is Psalm 16. 
Because if I, if I were to ask you, where in the, the Old Testament, because it says in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus died for sin according to the Scripture, and he rose again according to the Scripture, according to the Old Testament Scripture. So where in the Old Testament does it explicitly predict the Messiah would rise again? Well, you would look in vain for many scriptures until finally the most explicit and specific is Psalm 16. Where it's a prophecy of the Messiah speaking a thousand years before he lived that God the Father would not let his body undergo decay, that he would rise again from the dead. And so Acts chapter 2, when Peter is preaching to all of the Jews, he tells them that Jesus is the Messiah and the proof is the resurrection. And then he quotes Psalm 16 to these Jews. You should have seen it. It is there. It's messianic truth. And a little later on, the Apostle Paul, when he's preaching on his missionary journeys to the Gentiles and the Jews, he says the same thing. Jesus is the promised Messiah, just as Old Testament Scripture said. You Jews should know that. And then he quotes from Psalm 16. And I believe that's the Scripture primarily that maybe John understands for the first time. Wow. And this was the ministry of the illumination of the Holy Spirit, or God Almighty, allowing a believer to understand biblical truth in a way that sometimes we can't and also in a way that unbelievers cannot this was supernatural enlightening of the mind of a previous truth he had already heard and god was the one that revealed this to him this wasn't human ingenuity or sheer human education or erudition that he figured this out this was a gift from god to give him illumination regarding its meaning and that is the promise to every christian from first corinthians 2 when we read spiritual truth and hear spiritual truth it is clear that the world can't understand it. They read this stuff and they don't get it. Oh, that's bizarre. Oh, that can't happen. That's impossible. That's not scientific. This is ridiculous. How absurd. You guys are buffoons. You are idiots. You Christians are uneducated. They don't, get, they don't have the illumination of the Holy Spirit. The Christian, the believer who knows God, has an ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit called illumination that allows them to understand spiritual truths that unbelievers are blind to. And that's what happened to John the Apostle that day. He came to realize, wow, Jesus rose from the dead just as Scripture predicted. Now, John hasn't arrived yet because we're going to see a week later, he is still, John the Apostle who believed in the resurrection on that day, a week later, eight days later, he is still hiding in a room with the door locked, being afraid of the Jews. He is still not empowered. He doesn't have the Holy Spirit living in him yet as a full-fledged apostle of the church, that is yet to come. So he still has some human vulnerabilities and weaknesses, even though he does believe, even though he does know Jesus, even though he does believe in the resurrection. But he's going to get there. Verse 9, For as they yet did not understand the Scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. So after that and going in the tomb, then Peter and John decided, hey, let's, man, wow. It didn't, I don't know what Peter thought. He didn't say anything. So they turn around and go home. Meanwhile, so Mary goes back. She ran, Mary Magdalene, she's the first of the tomb. Then she runs back, tells Peter and John. They take off. They're probably way faster than her. Maybe Mary's talking to other people. She got left in the dust. Peter and John go. They see the tomb. They come back. Then Mary goes back to the tomb again. Probably to finish her task now that the Sabbath was over to anoint Jesus' body or try to find the body. And so that's verses 11 through 18. And here you have a story of a woman who has great, deep sorrow. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ, if you know him personally, can overcome your sorrow and any sorrow you have in life. If you know Jesus Christ personally, knowing the resurrection can overcome any fear. And now it's the resurrection of Christ and that great hope can help you overcome any sorrow. And that's what Mary has. Verse 11, Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. So she goes back to the tomb. She's weeping. She's continually, she is sobbing. It's one of the greatest losses she's ever known in her life. She continues to heave and weep and sob. It is ongoing. That's the tense of the verb. And it's recognized by two men who talk to her in a minute saying, why are you weeping? And then even the gardener, actually Jesus says, why are you weeping? She's just overwhelmed with grief. So she's weeping and she's standing outside the tomb and she's, emotionally distraught and so as she wept she stooped and looked into the tomb finally she decides she gets the courage to go in verse 12 and she saw two angels 
Mary did not know they were angels. The other gospel says that she saw in Luke 24, it says when she went there, she saw two men. They just looked like human beings. They were very clean, well-shaven, had a glow. But to her, they were just men. Plus, she's crying. She's not really uh, fixated on them or what they look, but they are definitely human personages that look like men. She thinks they are men. She doesn't make the connection. But in fact, this gospel tells us actually they were angels from God. So they talked to her. That's what, And when they start talking to her, she's not, oh, angels from heaven, I like your wings. She never does that. They don't have wings. These are two men. They are angels. They are from heaven. They are messengers from God. They are servants of the Almighty. They are servants of the Christ. That's what angels are. That's what they do. By the way, every significant event that ever happened in the life of Jesus Christ was surrounded by the ministry of angels. At his birth, angels were there to serve him, to witness for him at his birth. In the desert, as he begins his ministry, after 40 days, the angels come and minister to him as he's practically starving to death. At his temptation, at the end of his life, just before the crucifixion, the angels came to minister to Jesus Here at the resurrection, angels are there to witness on behalf of Jesus. As Jesus ascends into heaven, he's received by angels. When Jesus comes again, he comes with the angels. They're there to serve him. And so she sees these two men, but they're actually angels. And one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been laying. And they said to Mary, woman, why are you weeping? They're caring. They they care. They're personal. She said to them, because... They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. So she doesn't believe he's risen from the dead yet, even though Jesus himself had told her, I'm going to rise again from the dead. Another gospel lets us know that she's heard that before. He promised he'd rise again from the dead. Even Mary's not believing. She's not understanding. She's overwhelmed with grief. So she doesn't understand. She hasn't connected the dots. Verse 14, and when she had said this, she turned around, and she saw Jesus standing there, She didn't know that it was Jesus. So she sees another man. It's actually the resurrected Jesus Christ. She thinks it's the gardener. She's in a garden. Verse 15, Jesus said to her, Woman, why why are you weeping? I love this. Jesus is almighty, eternal, omniscient God of the universe in a body. And yet Jesus has this incredible, personal, intimate care with every person what so he he uh, sincerely concerned about her he has compassion for her that's a great truth if you know jesus you're just you're not lost in a crowd this idea that when you get to heaven wow there's going to be zillions of people and zillions of angels i don't even know if jesus is going to recognize me yeah he will he's omniscient almighty god and he'll attend to your personal needs every single one of us as he does now isn't that amazing Jesus, the blessed, caring, savior, woman. That was a term of respect. Why are you weeping? He didn't want to say her name yet because that would evoke a supernatural response. And that had to happen at the proper time. Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Jesus knew that. He knew all things. Now in his resurrection body, he was omniscient again. He wanted to elicit a response. Supposing him to be the gardener, Mary said to him, Sir... If you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. And then Jesus says in verse 16, said to her, Mary, there it was. That was illumination from Jesus himself. And there was a supernatural transaction that took place in Mary's mind that now she could spiritually see and everything uh, came together as a gift from God. And she realized this was Jesus risen from the dead, her beloved Savior in her presence. And so she turned and she said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni. Teacher, master, the master of all masters. That's an emphatic term, a very personal term. I am your student. You are my teacher. I found you. Just this great expression of joy, almost disbelief. Yet she does believe because she heard his name, Rabboni, and she calls him master. And Jesus says to her, stop clinging to me. Literally, let go of me. So what happened? Mary, Jesus, and she falls down and she grabs him by the ankles probably and just kissing his feet and she is not going to let go. I lost you once, I'm not going to lose you again. Clinging as tight as she can and Jesus says, and he he's not, uh, it's um, 
mild rebuke. He's just being practical here. Mary, you've got to let go of me. I, I'm not done with my ministry. I've got work to do. I've got people to visit. I'm going to ascend into heaven. You know that. You, you can't hang on to me. Let me go. So that's what he's saying. Stop cleaning me for I've not yet ascended to the Father, but go. You, I, and I've got a mission for you, Mary. You can't stay here. You've got to be my ambassador. You've got to be my sent one. You've got to be my apostle to my apostles who are hiding in a room behind a locked door in fear. As a matter of fact, uh, when Mary does this, the other gospels tell us, she goes back, she tells the apostles, I've seen Jesus, I've seen my Lord. And it says, point blank, it says this in Mark 16. The apostles, they refused to believe it. The apostles. Even with an eyewitness, reliable testimony of Mary, they knew Mary. So go tell my brethren, go to the apostles. By the way, this is the first time Jesus calls his apostles brethren. After three, Up to this point, it had always been, you are my slaves, you are servants, you are students. Now for the first time, he calls them my brethren, my brothers. There's an equality there. Jesus is almighty, eternal, sinless God. We are fallen, finite humans, and yet because of their personal relationship with him, and now that his work is done of dying on the cross for sinners, rising again from the dead, he now adopts us into his family as the children of God, while at the same time we become his brothers and sisters. And there's an equality there in terms of intimacy. And that's why Hebrews says that Jesus calls fellow believers brothers and sisters. So Jesus is our Lord, yes, and he's also our brother. Isn't that amazing? Especially you women. Maybe you women who are alone. You don't have a dad. You don't have an older brother. You don't have an older uncle. Somebody to protect you. You don't have a husband. Yeah, you do. You've got an elder brother. His name is Jesus. And he's with you wherever you go. I will never leave you or forsake you. It's a beautiful term. My brethren, my friend is another one that James uses now. This relationship changes by virtue of his work on behalf of sinners. And so he goes, go tell my brothers, not just my students, not the slaves, and tell them, I ascend to my father and your father. Wow. I ascend to my father and your father. You're adopted into the spiritual family of almighty God. Get this. And my God and your God. Go tell him, Mary. Well, Mary did. She was obedient. She's faithful. Verse 18. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, especially the apostles. She said, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to, to her. And it says in the other gospel that they didn't believe it. They doubted her. Yet Mary's been given great hope, great joy, and has overcome her sorrow by seeing the resurrected Jesus, just as he promised. So knowing Jesus through his resurrection can help us overcome our fear and any fear. And knowing Jesus through the resurrection can help us overcome any sorrow, even deathly sorrow. And then finally, John's account goes on to say and emphasize that if you know Jesus Christ personally, that can help you overcome doubt. And we all have doubt. So look at verse 19. So this is now Easter evening. So verse 19, when it was evening on that day, on Resurrection Sunday, the first day of the week, the first day of the week. By the way, if you go back to verse 1 in chapter uh, 20, verse 1, it says, now on the first day of the week. Luke says the same thing. It begins with, now on the first day of the week. In other words, it's emphatic at the beginning of the story in the account and even the sentence. It's an emphatic position. They're emphasizing the first day of the week. This account you're about to read happened on the first day of the week. You go and read Matthew and Mark. It says the same thing on the first day of the week, the first day of the week. I think God's trying to get a point across. The resurrection happened on the first day of the week. The reason that is important is because Jesus had been saying over and over again, I am going to rise on the third day. He said that to his apostles. They knew that he died on Friday and was buried on Friday. And he would spend a part of three days in the grave. So if the apostles were doing the math, okay, let's see. He was in the grave on Friday. He was in the grave on Saturday. He's in the grave on Sunday. Wow, today is the day. He will rise on the third day. The third day was the first day of the week. He died on Friday. The first day of the week is Sunday. It is the first day of the week. That's why it is so important. It is validating Jesus' work. He's fulfilling the promise that he gave. He will rise again on the third day. So that phrase, the first day of the week, is synonymous with on the third day. The first day of the week, the first day of the week, on Sunday. This was so important. And by the way, the Old Testament predicted that through the prophet of Jonah, as he was a prophecy of the coming Messiah, that he would be in the grave three days. Jesus fulfilled it to a T. Three days, 
rises again the third day just as he said. This became incredibly important. The third day was the day that Jesus rose from the dead, that Messiah fulfilled his promises. And as a result, the church that started and began began to recognize that as Jesus' day, the first day of the week. Every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday, isn't it? You know, next Sunday we're going to have Resurrection Sunday right here. Because that's every, every Sunday. And the early church adopted that. And that's why the Apostle Paul kind of formalized it in Acts 20 and 1 Corinthians 16. And he was telling the church, you meet on the first day of the week. Sunday, Jesus' day. And then by the time John came along 30 days later in the 90s in Revelation 1.10, John the Apostle acknowledges he was a pastor that Christians had been accustomed to meeting and worshiping on the first day of the week, which John the Apostle called the Lord's Day for the very first time. And for the last 2,000 years, Christians and believers all over the world have recognized Sunday as the Lord's Day, Jesus' Day, Resurrection Sunday. That's why we meet on Sunday. Sunday is not the Sabbath. Resurrection Day is not the Sabbath. Sabbath is from the Old Testament. Sabbath was a shadow. Sabbath was not the reality. Uh, The Sabbath was legal law. Jesus came and fulfilled the Sabbath and initiated and instituted the Lord's Day. Sabbath had to do with giving rest to people. Jesus said in Matthew 11, I will give you rest, and not just for a day, I will give you eternal spiritual rest by relationship with me. And if you come to believe in me, you will have that rest. You'll own it. It will be yours, and we'll celebrate it every Sunday, first day of the week, on the Lord's Day, the day of rest. That's why we worship on Sunday. Very important, going back to verse 19. So when it was evening on the first day of the week, Sunday evening, Resurrection Sunday, first day of the week, when the doors were shut, the verb can also mean locked, where the disciples or the apostles were. So there's uh, ten apostles. Judas is dead. He hung himself. He committed suicide. Thomas, one of the apostles, was not there. This could be in the upper room or somewhere like that. They're hiding out. They locked the doors. They are afraid of the Jewish authorities who killed Jesus. They're probably thinking, we're next. Doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, the Jewish leadership. Jesus, so here the door is locked. They're isolated. They think nobody can find him. And all of a sudden, poof, out of nowhere, Jesus appears in the room. Miraculously, instantaneously. He didn't necessarily walk through the wall. It could be because of his supernatural resurrection body that can habitate in this world and in the spiritual world probably had the ability to appear and reappear instantaneously as he willed isn't that amazing you know what's really cool not only does jesus have that kind of body if you're a christian you will get that same kind of body in the future someday a supernatural resurrection body appear reappear instantaneously and that's exactly what he did boom out of nowhere he appeared to the apostles they probably panicked they probably screamed they were in great fear Maybe even thinking it was a ghost. And that's why he said, first thing, peace be with you. They heard his voice. They heard the comforting voice of their Savior. Oh, Jesus. Amazing. Verse 20, and when he had said this, he provides more assurance, not just his voice. Remember, they were overwhelmed with fear and doubt. They didn't believe it, they told Mary. So he shows them his hands and his side. Why? Because the marks were still there. He's in a resurrected body and he still has the scars in his hands and in his side and in his feet. John, John, the apostle, why don't, don't doubt it's me. John, you were there at the cross. Remember when the soldier stuck the spirit in my side? It's been healed. It's me. So they show, uh, he shows his, the marks of his wounds to put them at ease, to comfort them, to validate the resurrection. Peace be with you. Oh, uh, going back to verse 20, and when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side and the disciples. Then they rejoiced. Then they rejoiced. Finally. Oh, it is our Lord. You know, it's kind of interesting. It says the disciples rejoiced, yet three weeks later, just at the time of the ascension, as Jesus gave his commission and ascended into heaven, it said that some still doubted. Some of the apostles still doubted. But they're rejoicing now. Not only that, another gospel tells us he starts eating food. He's got a real physical body. Verse 21, so Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. Don't have fear. As the Father has sent me, I'm about to send you as the apostles, as my ambassadors to establish the church, to, to evangelize the world of this great news that I've accomplished on behalf of sinners. Verse 22, and what he had said this, he breathed on them literally as a visual aid. He literally breathed on them as a symbol. This was, to us, it's kind of weird. 
to Hebrew prophets in the Old Testament, it wasn't weird. It was customary. Many times, visual, literal, graphic, physical, weird visual aids were done and enacted to be an emphatic in setting aside a prophet of God and a spokesperson of God. You can read it in Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. You're like, wow. But they were very concrete illustrations of a greater truth. And that is exactly what Jesus, who is called a prophet, is doing to his prophets and apostles of the church. And also, the fact that he breathed. The word for breath in Greek and in Hebrew is the same word for the Holy Spirit. When God the Father spoke out and breathed creation, he used his breath. When God breathed, he brought scripture into existence. When God breathed, Adam, the first human being, was given life. Breath speaks of the almighty creative power of God, which is testifying the fact that Jesus is God. He is the creator. He is the commissioner of his apostles about to be sent. So he's giving them authority in terms of their future role. This is not the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This is prophetic. This is a shadow of what is to come, a harbinger of what is to come. At Pentecost, in just less than 40 days, this will happen. The Holy Spirit will come upon you with great signs and miracles. But this is a precursor to prepare them for that great reality and fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture. And when he had said this, he breathed on his apostles and he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. It was yet to come, verse 23. He was giving them authority as apostles and also to give authority to the church. And actually giving authority to every Christian. Every single Christian has delegated authority from Almighty God. And that's true of every person here that knows Jesus Christ. You have a supernatural, heavenly, spiritual authority that God has given to you that began right here. That you can use, wield, and be a steward of over the entire world right now. And it has to do with spiritual truth and particularly the gospel. Any Christian can preach the gospel, right? Any Christian. And when we do... Any sinner can get saved through that gospel, can't they? And a sinner becomes a saint and an eternal soul is changed forever. And that became, that came, that transaction came from, from you as a Christian and being a steward of this supernatural power, power that God is, that Jesus is actually giving his apostles right now that will pass on to the church and pass on to every Christian. Because he says, verse 23, it's all about forgiveness of sin. If you, apostles, church, true Christian, forgive the sins of any, in other words, any Christian, when they give the gospel to an unbeliever and the unbeliever actually repents and says, I believe you as a Christian with full assurance can tell that sinner you are now forgiven of your sin. You can declare that to them. You have repented. You believe the right thing about the gospel. You are now forgiven of your sins. Any Christian can make that declaration. That's what he's talking about. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven. And it's only through the gospel It's not through anything we do. It's the truth of the gospel of who Jesus is, what he did. And if you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. What does that mean? If you proclaim the gospel to an unbeliever, they reject it. You need to warn them. Your sins are still on your your head. If you die, you will die in your sin. You'll die separated from God forever. You will face eternal damnation and judgment and hell because that's what Jesus said. That is the clear message of the gospel. And I don't want you to have that. This is delegated authority. So that's what Jesus did. And then in verse 24, but Thomas, one of the apostles, his name was Didymus. He was, that means twin. He had a twin brother, wasn't one of the apostles. His twin brother never uh, showed up in the gospel accounts. But Thomas wasn't there. Uh, we, we called Thomas Doubting Thomas for different reasons. But uh, anyway, he wasn't there for whatever reason at this time. He wasn't with the rest of the apostles. He wasn't there when Jesus came, verse 25. So he didn't see Jesus resurrected. So the other disciples or apostles, when they finally saw Thomas, they said to Thomas, Thomas, guess what? We've seen the Lord Jesus. He's risen from the dead. Can you believe it? No. Sounds like Thomas. Um, But Thomas said, unless I see his hands, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, unless I see, I want empirical data. I am an engineer. Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Wow, he's making pretty strong demands. Well, eight, eight days go by. 
after Resurrection Sunday, verse 26. After eight days, Jesus' disciples or apostles were together again, probably the ten of them. This time, Thomas was there. So now there's 11. Thomas was with them. Uh, again, the doors, it says explicitly, they're in that room and the doors were locked. They were shut and locked, probably still hiding in fear. And then once again, boom, out of nowhere, Jesus appears in his glorious resurrection physical body. And again, he has to say, peace be with you, so he doesn't give him a heart attack. Puts them at ease, verse 27. And then he says, directly to Thomas. This is amazing. He goes, immediately directly to Thomas, the one who wasn't there, the one who doubted. How does Jesus know that Thomas doubted eight days later? He wasn't there when they had the conversation because Jesus knows everything. And it's this personal ministry. He's got to get Thomas on board. I need all the apostles with the same... It's all the apostles as a team, as a family of God, laying the foundation. So this is a very personal, intimate, caring ministry on behalf of Jesus where he sees us as individuals and knows everything about us. And he knows that Thomas needs particular, special care and encouragement. And that's why he looks at Thomas and says, Thomas, here. Here I am, reach here with your, with your finger and see my hands and I'm going to give you what you want. You made the demands and here I am. See my hands. Reach here your hand and put it into my side. Don't be unbelieving anymore, Thomas, but be believing. Thomas is overwhelmed. He, he doesn't touch Jesus' hands. He doesn't touch the side. As he, I won't believe until I can touch. He doesn't need to do that. He is overwhelmed, probably with conviction and also the very presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and fulfillment of Scripture and the illumination for him kicks in and all those blessed truths and the testimony of his brethren. In verse 28, Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. That is one of the most powerful statements in the entire Bible declaring the deity of Jesus Christ. Jesus is God. He is Lord. He is worthy of worship. He is the only Savior. He's the only way to heaven. He's the only way you can have your sins forgiven. My Lord and my God, Jesus accepted that worship from Thomas because it was true. And Jesus said to him, because you have seen me and have believed. Is it because you have seen me and have believed? Blessed, get this. So he commends Thomas for believing. But... And it's basically a blessing, but he gives a greater blessing to those who would believe and never see Jesus. I don't know about you. I have never seen Jesus. Jesus has never come and appeared to me uh, in my bedroom or closet or on the road or in the sky or in the. I have never seen Jesus. But I believe in Jesus. I only heard about Jesus. I only heard about Jesus from the truth of Scripture. And I believed in him. And I became saved. And he adopted me into his family and he gave me his Holy Spirit that lives inside of me because of my belief in him and the truth that came out of Scripture. I didn't need archaeological evidence. I didn't need a personal appearance from heaven from Jesus. And if that's true of you as well, then there's a special blessing for you, those who have believed without seeing. Today we have plenty of unbelievers demanding the evidence. I won't believe until I see. I won't believe until I touch. Well, you don't need that. You need a softened heart. It's not what you don't see. It's your hardened heart that's keeping keeping that from happening. And that was true of Thomas. So blessed are those who do not see me and yet believe. There's a special blessing from God for all of you who fall into that category. This is That is sweet. That is precious. So when we go around and we preach the gospel about Jesus Christ, we don't need the we don't need a physical image of jesus we don't need jesus to come down and make a special appearance to convince people all we need is the life-changing truth of the gospel that comes from the scriptures it's the living word of god it is the breath of god it is the creative life-giving breath of god it is sufficient the truth about who jesus is and what he did that can change a soul the moment they believe that truth so that's what's needed and that brings us to our conclusion. Therefore, John wraps it up. Therefore, many other signs, many other miracles Jesus performed in the presence of the disciples. There are so many miracles that Jesus did in the course of his three-year ministry that if John wrote them down, he, he, there wouldn't be enough paper or parchment to write it down. Jesus did too many miracles to recount. There are just way too. They would fill all the books of the world. So John was selective. We don't need all of that. We don't need to amass all this empirical archaeological data. 
to convince people. We just need what is sufficient from God with respect to the truth. And so John wrote his gospel specifically with seven miracles, seven signs. That's what he's talking about at verse 30. Many other signs or miracles that Jesus did, which are not written in the book that I'm giving you in this gospel, but these ones I have written down. These seven miracles I've given to you about Jesus. They are sufficient. They are enough. Beginning with the first miracle Jesus ever did of him turning water into wine that none of the other gospels mentioned, revealing that he is the creative God who has power over nature like no one else. So John included only seven miracles in his gospel, including the resurrection, the greatest of all miracles. And that's John is saying, you know what? The resurrection story, the fact that Jesus rose from the dead as he said he would, he overcame death. That is sufficient. To know about that, to hear it from Scripture, from reliable eyewitnesses who wrote it down, to tell that to people, that is sufficient for them to have an eternal heart change. I am writing these select ones down, verse 31, in order that for the purpose of so that you, unbeliever, when you hear this truth, may believe, may become a Christian, May join the family of God. That's what he means. When you hear the gospel truth about Jesus, it's all it takes. You may believe that Jesus is the Christ. That's emphasizing his humanity. And also you will believe that he's the son of God. That's emphasizing his deity. When you hear from scripture, the truth about Jesus, and you come to realize that Jesus is the eternal God man who lived a perfect life, who died on the cross willingly as a substitute for sinners, absorbing the wrath of a holy God in the place of sinners. And you believe that he was buried in accordance with the prophecies of Old Testament scripture and that he raised from the dead. He even raised himself from the dead in accordance with Old Testament scripture. And then he ascended on high and went back to heaven where he originally came from as he lived with God the Father in perfect harmony for all of eternity. And now he reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords over the entire earth. And he's sending out his representatives on earth, Christians, the church, to continue to give this life-changing message, fulfilling his mission, which has never changed, and is to seek and to save those who are lost. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And Christians are responsible for this message we call the gospel. The gospel means good news. What is the good news? The good news is that you can be saved from the bad news, which is your own sin and eternal death and the judgment of God. And it's not by your works. It's the work of God through the work of Christ on the cross and his resurrection. All you have to do is believe that message. Repent, recognize your sin. Come to him. He'll answer that prayer. He will change you. He'll adopt you. He will save you. He will forgive you. And he will be your blessed savior. That is the good news of Christianity. That's what Resurrection Sunday is all about. And he concludes verse 31, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And that's why the apostle Paul said, confess with your mouth, Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And you as an individual will be saved the very moment you ask Christ to save you. And you believe that it'll happen right now and you will inherit eternal life in this life for all time. What a great truth. I want to close. If you got your Bible, go to Philippians chapter 3. A beautiful summary of the meaning of uh, Jesus' whole life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and even his role as high priest in heaven. Uh, Verse 20 and 21. If you're a Christian, this is true of you. If you are not a Christian today, this can be true of you you believe in his gospel and embrace jesus as savior verse 20 philippians 3 says for our citizenship christians is in heaven it's in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a savior the lord jesus christ who will it's a promise verse 21 he will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself He is risen. Let's try that one more time. He is risen. risen Amen. If you don't know Jesus Christ personally and you have questions about what you heard today or or you needed prayer, anything at all, uh, I'm going to be available up front if you want to talk to me and we can talk. And I wish God's blessing upon 
you all. Let's go ahead and pray and thank the Father for our time together. Father, we do thank you for the time you've given us today. Thank you for the opportunity to gather with the saints for blessed fellowship. Thank you for the truth of your word. This amazing, true historical account of why Jesus came and how he rose again from the dead. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you're alive in heaven now, meeting our needs, tending to our specific needs as you did to Mary, as you did to Thomas, in such an intimate way. We thank you for your ministry to that that need that we have. And God, thank you that you're also pursuing relentlessly and aggressively sinners that they might be saved and come to you. And we pray you continue to do your work all for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.